Welcome back to Drunkenly Paranormal, your dose of debauchery in a dastardly drunken podcast. I'm your host, Salem, and I'm joined as always by my fellow paranormal investigator, Harlem. We're back in the studio again, putting in the work to get people the answers to the questions they want to know. Hang on, let me get ready. Hell All right, uh, I'm ready. I'm cracked Art, and ready. Is your paranormal investigating battery charged? Are you locked in to investigate? Always, man. Always. I'm inebriated, and that's all I need. I prefer to think of it as our minds... The tools come second. Our minds are expanded to consider the possibilities, all right? If you're joining us for the first time and perhaps wondering what you've stumbled across, maybe wondering who we are or what this podcast is all about, I'll tell you. We're the paranormal investigators that believe an open, expanded, and possibly inebriated mind is necessary to unlock life's mysteries. With that spirit in mind, we'd like to investigate with a cold drink in our hand to strengthen our courage and raise, well, certainly our spirits, but maybe others as well. At the end of the, uh, every episode, we'll vote to decide if there's something paranormal going on or if it's something you need to be drunk to believe in. On today's case, we'll be studying uh, close to home, investigating something that every child who grew up in the great state of Texas was told about from the time they could walk. The Alamo. Hell yeah. I know you've heard about Davy Cockett. Crockett. <laughs> it's a huge part of Texas culture. It's ingrained into every Texan psyche. It's both one of the saddest moments in Texas history, but also a moment that every Texan looks at with a great deal of pride. Hell yeah, come take it. That was Gonzalez, but yeah, say more. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the Alamo, despite being the most famous for the battle that took place there, was never intended to be a military fortification. In fact, it was intended for the extreme opposite of war. Peace. The Alamo was originally a mission. Its site was chosen by Father Antonio de Santa... Dude, that's a hell of a name. Buenaventura Oliveras in 1724. Sounds Irish. Yeah, it sounds super Irish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's definitely... Uh, I think he's Spanish. So he founds it in 1724 after the Catholic monks' first attempt to establish a mission, uh, San Francisco de Solano in the Rio Grande Valley, failed. Um, hostile Native Americans drove the priests from the region and back towards San Antonio, or, and back towards the San Antonio River. There, underneath a cottonwood tree, the monk and the survivors of the first mission decided it would make a great spot for a new mission. However, it would be about 20 years, so in 1744, until they actually got to constructing the Alamo. The new mission, San Antonio de Valero, was named after St. Anthony of Padua and San Antonio de Valero. So that's why we have so many Valeros on our corners. I, well, yeah, it's, it's, all, it's all from this dude's name. Mm. And he was the Spanish viceroy at the time. Um, this mission would be the first of five such missions built by the Franciscan monks along the San Antonio River to spread Catholicism across Spanish territory. Just as an aside, for those of you who are not from Texas, maybe kind of wondering why we're calling Texas Spanish territory, it's because at this time, Texas was part of the Spanish Empire until 1821 when Mexico gains its independence, and then Texas is part of Mexico until Texas gains its own independence in 1836. In 1793, the Spanish began secularizing their missions, starting with San Antonio de Valero. For a time, the church became the location of the first hospital in Texas. Kind of a fun fact. 
Uh, the mission was soon outfitted as a fort where it got a new name, the Alamo. The name the Alamo derives from the Spanish word for cottonwood tree. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Yeah, I'd, I'd always wondered where the, uh, the name the Alamo came from, but now it's synonymous with like where you make your last stand. Um, so I think it's kind of funny how uh, history has changed how people perceive the word. Uh, the fort was built here in response to increasing threats from the French and American explorers in the region. So the Spanish government decided it needed to send more soldiers to defend its territory. So they built up the Alamo, and in 1803, the first Spanish soldiers would arrive and remain at their post until 1821, when, like I said before, Mexico gains its independence and the fort is turned over to the Mexican army. Meanwhile, early Mexico struggled to find its political identity. It was first a monarchy, then a constitutional republic. Um, the republic would again be altered by the election of a familiar, another familiar name to all Texans, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, as president in 1833. Mexico was then again transformed from a republic to a dictatorship under Santa Ana. As a dictator, Santa Ana would institute immigration laws such as banning immigrants from the U United States, instituting a heavy tariff on U.S. goods, banning slavery, and demanding all immigrants convert to Catholicism. These changes drew the anger of many Texans, and October 2nd, 1835, Texas's war for independence from Mexico began. What do you, does this just like feel like Texas history at this point? Yeah, I'm digging it, I'm loving it, Texas. I'm still waiting for the part where we succeed. We're getting, we're getting there. Uh, on December 5th, 1835, Texans attacked the city of San Antonio de Bejar in a bid to liberate it from Mexican control. They had heard that the Mexican forces uh, that were occupying the city were low on both morale and supplies. So the Texans figured the time was right to take the town. So Benjamin Milan and William Gordon Cook gathered more than 300 volunteers to attack the city, while a 400-man uh, force under the command of Edward Burleson scouted around the city to prevent a counterattack. Texans fought street to street against Mexican forces under the command of General Martin Perfector de Cos, the brother-in-law of Santa Ana. Accounts of the battle paint a grisly picture, with snipers picking off troops from the rooftops, men fighting hand-to-hand -hand in the streets, and cannon fire leveling entire buildings. However, after three days of intense fighting, the Texans gained the upper hand. I feel like I'm watching a movie and it's all going down in my head right now. Yeah. <clears throat> Did you know that there was like a big battle for San Antonio? I, I didn't. Well, like, I mean, the Alamo's in San Antonio, so... Right, but this they... is before the Alamo. Like, I always assumed that San Antonio was always under the Texans' control, but I didn't realize they had to fight to liberate it from the Mexican army, and then the Mexican army counterattack. But nearing defeat, Cos concentrated the bulk of his cannon, muskets, and men in the Alamo in a bid to make a final stand and hold the fort until reinforcements could arrive. However, by December 9th, after two days of being surrounded, Cos realized no one would reach him in time and asked the Texans for the terms of surrender. Burleson, who the men had voted to be in charge of all Texan forces participating in the battle, demanded Koss surrender his cannons, muskets, and other equipment and vacate the fort. Koss accepts. Largely bitch, due to lack move. Well, he's surrounded, and no one's coming for him, and he doesn't have supplies in the Alamo. So he's basically like, I surrender, we fight all to the death, or I starve. Like, my men starve to death. Either way, you don't have a good option. Uh, largely due to the fact that the Texans didn't have supplies either to feed all of Koss's forces, Burleson just goes, ride south. 
Just leave. Leave the city. In total, 30 to 35 Texans were killed and roughly 150 Mexican soldiers died during the battle, which would be dubbed the Siege of Bejar. After the battle, most of the Texans went home, believing any response from Mexico would take months to get there. Remember, it's December, it's the winter. They'd have to march 300 miles through the winter to get there, and they're like, that's not going to happen. Yeah, but it's Texas, and it's winter. Yeah, it's They ain't marching through shit. Yeah, I mean, it's not like there's snow on the ground. Yeah. The Texans leave behind a skeleton crew to defend the mission under the command of James C. Neal. Over the course of the next month, Texan forces re-outfit the old mission, positioning the captured Mexican cannons into various defensive uh, positions and strengthening the outer walls. They know it's only a matter of time before the Mexican army comes back, and they want to be ready. Costs, like I said before, were Santa Ana's brother-in-law. Um, so this is pretty personal to the Mexican dictator. He just watched his brother get spanked by a bunch of rebels, and he figured he could not allow the Texans to break away from Mexico or he's going to look weak as a dictator. And weak dictators get deposed. And usually that, when they're deposed, it means they've been murdered. So rightly, the rebellion's leaders are weighing these factors and they're like, yeah, we embarrassed Santa Ana's brother. He's got to be coming back. we got to be ready. So in January of 1836, General Sam Houston, the Supreme Commander of Texan Forces, Here we go. came to the conclusion that San Antonio was far too east of the Texans' main strength and that the city should be abandoned. Oh, fuck you, Sam Houston. Additionally, the fort's commander, James C. Neal, had stated that the men stationed there were underfed and lacking ammunition. This paints the picture that what the men are there for to hold the Alamo and the city will not work. Um, and so Sam Houston's like, this really isn't worth it. You guys need to abandon the fort. So he sends uh, Colonel James Bowie, all right, my boy. The famous inventor of the Bowie knife that bears his name, to go to the Alamo, tell him to vacate it, strip it of its cannons, and blow it up. Because doesn't he die by like a fever or some shit though? He dies in his bed during the Battle of the Alamo. Yeah. So Sam he or Sam Houston sends James Bowie and he goes, blow it up, bring back the cannons. We can't hold it anyways. On January nineteenth, shortly after arriving in San Antonio, Bowie disobeys the order. He assesses the situation and decides that if the fort is stripped for its weapons and abandoned, that Texas will have no defense against Santa Ana showing up and recapturing the bulk of Texas's territory. San Antonio is located on one of the main roads leading into Texas from Mexico at that time, so it's strategically important in maintaining supply lines as well as communications. If the city were to fall, the Texan army would be cut off from vital supplies and information from uh, the outer parts of its territory. Bowie decides that the only way to prevent this from happening is that the fort must be held at all costs. The problem? Bowie and Neil together only have 25 men under their command. They're going to need a lot more people to defend the Alamo. Uh, I read somewhere rec recently, too, that Bowie's decision to hold the Alamo may have actually had something to do with his wife. Like, uh, he married a Hispanic woman. I think she passed away before this of, I think, the same disease that winds up killing Bowie. Well, I mean, would have if he'd been allowed to die. Um, and he was like, his wife's family is from San Antonio, and he was like, no, I'm just not going to give up the Alamo. I'm not going to give up the city because my this was my wife's home, and I want to defend it, which is kind of chivalrous. Okay, um, okay. Bowie and Neil write letters basically saying that they would rather die in these ditches than give up this post to the enemy. 
They need more men to defend the place, so they're looking for volunteers. William Travis, so another famous Texan, was the first to answer the call. He arrives with an estimated either 30 to 100 men on February 1st. On February 8th, former congressman and celebrity David Davy Crockett arrives with 11 other volunteers raising the Alamo's defenders' numbers. The Texans now have an estimated 157 men to hold the entirety of the city and the fort. On February 11th, Neil is forced to leave the fort due to a family emergency. Before departing, Neil and Travis study the best available intelligence and conclude that Mexican forces will not arrive until mid-March at the earliest. As a result of this conclusion, Neil feels it's safe for him to leave. He promises her to return within 20 days with reinforcements and additional supplies. He'd never get the chance. He leaves Travis in command of the regular army and Jim Bowie in command of the volunteers. Uh, these two would have co-command of the Alamo for the duration of the battle. Due to their, the Alamo defenders having low supplies and only a small number of troops, the Texans were unable to send out a full scouting complement to give them maximum warning of Santa Ana's advance. As a result, it's not until the Mexican army is within, I think it's like two miles of the city, um, before they're finally spotted. Oh, damn. So this is too late for them to mount a proper defense of the city. It basically only gives them enough time to grab what supplies they can and run into the Alamo and shut the gates and get ready to defend it because that's their only option now. On February 23rd, Santa Ana takes the city of San Antonio de Bejar without firing a single shot. He then erects a red flag in San Fernando Church, which meaning uh, the meaning of this flag was surrender now or I will kill you all. So Bowie and Travis kind of talk to each other and like, what should we do? And Bowie's like, let me go out and try to negotiate. Remember, he, he married a very prominent uh, family or married into a very prominent family in uh, San Antonio, so he speaks good Spanish. So he goes out to attempt to negotiate. And if you've, uh, have you seen The Alamo, the 2004 movie? No. So that one, it's, it's really good, A, and it's also really historically accurate because they consulted the Alamo Museum in the making of the movie. But there's this really great scene where Bowie is like standing on this bridge outside of the Alamo, and he hasn't really told Travis that he's gonna go out and negotiate. And so he's sitting there, and they're talking back and forth, um, and Santa, like Anna, sends one of his generals to negotiate with Jim Bowie. And the only terms the Texans can get is uh, at the discretion of the general, which means there's no guarantee that the Texans will be allowed to be alive if they'll be taken prisoner or what, what will happen. Like They could just surrender and then all get executed. So um, Bowie's talking this out with his general and he's like, man, these aren't good terms. What can you do? Can you go talk to Santa Anna? Meanwhile, Travis notices that Bowie is over there negotiating, and he, he gets pissed off. So he goes over, and he fires a cannon. Uh, I think it was an 18-pound cannon, the biggest one they had at the Alamo, and this is Bowie's, or rather Travis's response to Santa Ana saying, surrender now or I'll kill you all, and it's just a one loud boom, like, go fuck yourself, we're here to hold the Alamo, you can kiss my ass. Hell yeah. So obviously, the negotiations break down. Having now seen the Mexican army outside their walls, Travis and Bowie know they cannot hold out against the Mexican army forever with the men they have. They estimate that the army outside their walls is between 1,800 and 6,000 men. Bowie dispatches Juan Seguin, a Tejano man who grew up in the area and formerly served as a scout 
and the Mexican army to sneak past, past the Mexican lines and deliver letters calling for reinforcements. He knows the land best and stands the largest chance of slipping by unnoticed. So one night, he drops over the wall and disappears. All right, so one of the first uh, people that Juan Seguin's letters reach is James Fannin at Fort Defiance in Goliad. And he vows, I'm going to reinforce the Alamo. So he sends word to the Alamo that I'm on my way. Don't worry, buddy. I'm bringing 400 men. We're going to come save you. Fannin and his men depart for the Alamo the next day. But by the end of that day, they're still within sight of Goliad. And then one of the wagon's wheels breaks. And they decide they have to turn around. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty fucked up. You don't bring an extra wheel, you stupid bitch. Uh... To make matters even worse is Fannin gets intelligence when he returns to the city that another Mexican army that broke off of Santa Ana's main force is headed to Goliad. And so now James Fannin feels like he can't leave. He's got to stay at Fort Defiance and try and defend the city. Um, but where he really fucks up is he never sends any word to the Alamo that reinforcements aren't coming. So the defenders at the Alamo would fight the entire battle thinking... Help is just like, maybe if we make it one more day, those guys from Goliath will show up. And they never do. And they actually have a really tragic ending. They're all captured. I think uh, eventually they the do. The Goliath try guys? Eventually they all try to leave. And I don't remember if it's after the Battle of the Alamo or during the Battle of the Alamo. But they're all captured and they surrender. And Santa Ana orders them all executed. So 400 men are massacred. Oh, damn. Meanwhile, uh, while all this is going on, the siege is, is raging. Santa Ana has been gradually encircling the city with siege equipment. His army is large, so he can keep rotating men around the clock, digging ditches, establishing artillery positions, shoring up holes in their lines. At night, he plays music and fires cannons to keep the defenders from getting any sleep. To make matters worse for the defenders, by the second day of the siege, Bowie has become too ill to serve as a co-commander, which leaves William Travis, who had no military experience, in sole command of the Alamo. By the sixth day of the siege, Santa Ana completes his encirclement of the fort and unleashes a cannon barrage on the Alamo. Now, just to give you an idea of the layout of the Alamo defenses, I've got a little map for you. The Alamo, as we envision it today, is... You can look at the map in the bottom right. It says chapel. That is all that's left of the actual outer walls. Um, the chapel. The chapel and the courtyard, I believe. The rest of it has been torn down. The uh, So if you're looking at the map, it's obviously it's a couple of rectangle uh, fortifications. On the left side is the longest part. And you can kind of see the modern day streets that they lie along. So it's Houston Street, where you can see various cannon positions overlooking the walls. Um, then down on the left bottom corner, you've got Cro Crockett Street. And there was a prison, uh, a guardhouse, and a Sally Porter, which I think is a gatehouse. Um, in the center of the compound, it looks like they dug a well and had a final cannon for, de can for defense. Then if you're moving to the right along East Houston Street, you've got the convent yard, and uh, below that in the bottom right corner is the chapel. 
So you can kind of see, looking at it, what fortifications they had. Does that look like really substantial to you? No, it doesn't really look like it's a very large area. It looks pretty open. And so in the large area, the convent yard. I mean, I don't, I can't remember what it looks like in my head since I've been there. You know. Uh, well, I mean, it doesn't really look like it. It does now. Like they, uh, they rebuild. Uh, I think a good chunk of the Alamo because these guys are getting shelled with cannons, so it gets pretty messed up in the battle. Meanwhile, these guys, you know, they're not getting sleep at night because the Mexican army's blaring music. They're they're getting blown up with cannons, and just to like make the icing on the shit cake that the defenders have, the temperature drops. Two cold fronts blow in, plummeting the temperature to below thirty degrees. Oh, nice. So this meager defense force, undermanned, undersupplied, uh, are forced to shiver in the cold while the vice around them slowly gets tighter and tighter. Meanwhile, they're still hoping and praying reinforcements show up from Goliad. But the good news for them is the one good thing that happens to these guys is that 32 men from the Gonzales uh, Ranging Company are able to sneak into the Alamo bringing its defenders to their full complement of roughly 189 men. The siege at the Alamo would go on like this until March 6th, being shelled every night, not being allowed to sleep, the Mexican forces getting closer and closer and closer. The day before, so March 5th, Santa Ana had called a meeting to discuss his plan for the next day. After a massive artillery barrage, much like the defenders of the Alamo had been during for the previous 12 days, his forces would launch a four-pronged assault at dawn. And just to be sure he catches the Texans up, like off guard, there will be no music the night before, there will be no cannon barrage. So these guys who've been kept awake now for almost two weeks, 12 days, he goes, they'll finally be allowed to sleep, which will guarantee that no one's watching the walls. Because if you've been up for 12 days, you're going to fall asleep. You're going to fall asleep. <laughs> Santa, Anna, then... Uh, restates the order that every defender of the Alamo will be killed. We're not taking prisoners. Everyone dies. To the credit of his generals, they argue um, for delaying the assault for another day, uh, saying, hey, you know, we've got heavy artillery that'll be getting here from Mexico. Let's wait for that to arrive, because that will mean less of our guys die trying to storm the fort. And Santa Ana's like, no, no, no. Tomorrow. Four-pronged assault. We're doing it. And then the generals try to argue again. They're like, hey, Maybe we don't kill everyone. And Santa Ana is like, no. The, in, in his mind, he has to stamp out the rebellion. And the way he's going to do that is with these like horrible displays of force. So he's trying to convince the Texans, if you fight me, if you resist, I will murder you all. Um, and he really doesn't understand the, the, the Texan mindset very well because we really don't back, you know, back down from bullies. You know, someone comes up and goes, hey, I'm going to kick your ass. Texans kind of have that, like, chip on their shoulder. Like, oh, you can sure fucking try, bud. <laughs> like, let's go. Yeah, bring it on, motherfucker. Let's see who wins. I'm ready for a fight. So despite his generals trying to say, hey, we really should wait for the artillery. We'll save more lives. And maybe don't kill everyone. Santa Ana is like, no. Tomorrow at dawn on March 6th, we storm the walls. Too bad, Santa Ana, because we whip your fucking ass. Yeah, this comes full circle right quick. The night of the 5th, Travis pretty famously draws a line in the sand. He gathers all the men around him and he goes, Look, 
Tomorrow is probably the big barrage. Uh, and if anyone wants to leave, you have my permission. But everyone, if you are willing to stay and fight to the death, cross this line with me right now. All of the men in the Alamo except one, a guy named Moses Rose, crossed the line in the sand. Bitch. So with Juan Seguin and a couple other dispatch riders still gone, there's only an estimated 187 men to defend the Alamo against maybe as many as 6,000. So that's like, what, 30 times their number? Yep. On dawn, at dawn, on March 6th, Santa Ana's attacks are carried out. In the early minutes of the battle, William Travis is shot in the head and killed. Of course. Right like, away. Right out the gate. Yeah, he I dies. don't know what he's doing. Guys, I think I see somebody. Zip. Boom. Headshot. There's <laughs> Travis. He's who's where's, where's Jim Bowie? Oh, he's bedridden. So the only commander that's left, really, able to... Uh, Make make a tactical decisions as a guy named Captain Dickinson. Nice. And then David Grant with Dicks and Sons. <laughs> That's so wrong. Uh, despite the loss of the lone commander, now the Texans defenders managed to repel the first wave of the attack, and then miraculously the second. The third wave, however, proved a charm for Santa Ana. It breached the north wall of the compound and then poured through the cattle pen and into the fort. The west wall then falters and finally falls, and now Mexican soldiers are rushing in mass into the Alamo compound. The defenders are forced to abandon the outer walls and fall back into an interior walled section that contains the long barracks where the soldiers slept in the church itself. It's not long after this that Mexican soldiers break into Jim Bowie's room where he's been laying sick in bed and kill him. Damn it. Sorry, buddy. I, you know, in the movie The Alamo, there, there's like a really cool scene where like they're trying to break down the door and he's like, he loads two pistols, like one in either hand and he grabs his Bowie knife and he's completely weak. I think he's got typhoid and they come through the door and he sits up and poof, blows the first guy away and poof, kills the second guy and he goes reaching for his Bowie knife and that's when like six other dudes rush into the room and bayonet him in his bed and like he dies. Oh, fuck. But it was pretty bad. That's an intense way to go, dude. Fighting to the end. Yeah. Fuck this sickness. Suck on my knife, bitch. <laughs> yeah. I'm going out with my boots on, baby. Yeah. Uh, now, here's where reports kind of conflict. The Texans are holding the long barracks in the church itself. And we're, historians disagree if Davy Crockett was killed in the chapel or if he and, like, Four other guys were taken prisoner. Because remember, Davy Crockett was famous. He was formerly a U.S. Uh, congressman from Tennessee. Uh, he was known all across the South for being this like great frontiersman. Um, so Santa Ana may have captured him and taken him alive. I thought he was shot and killed. He may have been, but the, the historians kind of disagree. Like in the movie The Alamo, he's taken prisoner. He's one of the last guys alive. Yeah, but in the actual Alamo, they have his vest, and they can show you where his the bullet yeah. wounds are in the vest. Yeah, so he may have been executed by firing squad later, or he may have died and been wounded, and you know, died during the battle or been wounded during the battle. But no one, because everyone at the Alamo was killed, no one is sure whether or not Davy Crockett was taken prisoner. But historians tend to agree that he died towards the end of the battle, so he was one of the last few people left alive. Shit. Um, in the in the movie The Alamo, he's uh, like he's on his knees and he's tied up, and like Santa Anna is like, "This is Billy Bob." That or he's played by Billy Bob Thornton. 
But he goes, this is this is Davy Crockett. Like, what the fuck? Who? This guy's nothing special. And uh, Davy Crockett is like, hey, uh, if you guys are willing to surrender, I'll accept your surrender. Like, he's the only guy left alive, and he's telling the Mexican army, like, if you surrender now, I'll be kind to you. Probably didn't happen. Probably just Hollywooded up. But then he's bayoneted to death. Oh damn. So. Whether or not he oh, was... yeah, cocky son of a bitch. Way yeah. to go. Way to go, yeah. That's how I'd want to go out. Yeah, if yeah. you surrender to me now... <laughs> it's one guy... Not versus... too late. Yeah. <laughs> it's one guy versus like 5,000 at this point. But any whatever, whether or not Davy Crockett was taken prisoner, the end result is every defender of the Alamo is killed. The whole battle... Um, that morning on March 6th lasts 90 minutes. So in an hour and a half, everyone's dead. Sounds like a fucking slumber party. <laughs> an estimated 500 to 1,500 Mexican soldiers are killed, and an additional 500 were reported wounded. So not bad work for 200 guys, killing like seven times, over seven times their number. Hell yeah, way to go. It's probably easy if you got cannons and there's a shitload of people. It's probably Dude, hard to fucking miss. Could you imagine, I, I was thinking about this as I was writing the script, like, if you went back in time with the machine gun, <laughs> oh, God. And, and you just mowed people down, you probably could have held the Alamo with two N60 machine guns on the north and the west wall and, like, 10,000 rounds of ammunition. Like, you would have butchered the whole Mexican army. Fuck. If time travel were possible, that would be, like, one of the things I'd do is I'd go back in time... And fight at the Battle of the Alamo, but I'm going to have a machine gun and grenades. Uh, unfortunately, the Alamo defenders don't have any of that. They all die. Yeah, and dude, that'd be fucking crazy. It would. Helicopters or something. You call it an air strike? Yeah. <laughs> like an A-10 coming in? And yeah, mows people down. down. Uh, well, like I said, they didn't, they didn't have any of that fun stuff, and they all die. Yeah, sucks to be y'all, but good job defending it. Yeah, good job defending it. Fuck you, Rose. Yeah, what a fucking... I don't, I don't know if he had, like, a family or something, but, like, I mentioned Captain Dickinson. His wife and child were huddled up inside the Alamo. Like, they, they survived the siege because uh, Santa Ana wouldn't, like, he yeah, wouldn't kill women and children. But right, it's, he had that going it's really from her diary that we know what the final minutes of the battle were like. Because she saw it and then wrote it down. Oh, man. But the, the bodies of the defenders of the Alamo are piled up into three, like, piles, and they're burnt. Some reports indicate that a few bodies were buried in a mass grave, and others were dropped into the San Antonio River to float down as a warning to further rebels. Santa That's fucked up. You're poisoned in the water, you dick. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Santa Ana then withdraws and begins his march towards the northeast where Sam Houston's army is positioned. To prevent the mission from being like a symbol for the Texans' rebellion and the, the, uh, the, the defenders to look like martyrs, he orders that some of his troops need to go back and burn the mission down. And this is roughly where we start getting into the paranormal territory. Alright, let's go. Dive into it. Santa Ana orders uh, General Andrande to bring a group of cavalrymen to the site of the, the battle and burn the mission to the ground. So the general's like, fuck it, you, 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 go, go burn the Alamo down. They come back and they're like shaking, they're white-faced, and they're like, you'll never believe what we saw, but it's very clear that they believe it. They said when they arrived at the mission, they found six diablos, or devils, 
standing before it. Each spirit held a flaming sword in their hand. These devils in advance of the soldiers, and in so doing, bar them from entering the mission. The men, fearing that the devils will attack if they carry out burning the Alamo, flee. Rumors then begin circulating that entities protecting the Alamo were either the spirits of the slain defenders or old Franciscan monks guarding their old mission. Now, General Andrade hears these words and he's pissed off. He's like, dude, you're making up bullshit because you don't want to do what I told you to do. So he leads them in back to the Alamo and he gets as far as like the interior wall near the long barracks. This time, a lone figure is there to greet them. A tall male spirit rises up on the roof. In each hand, he clasps a ball of fire. The specter held out the flaming weapons and the Mexican soldiers Terrified, drop to their knees. Once their wits return, they promptly flee, and the mission is saved from being burned down. What do you think about that? Mm. Right out the gate, we've got crazy, crazy paranormal things happening. That's crazy. I don't know, man. Where the hell did you find that shit? I've never heard that. The official page for the uh, uh, the Alamo. Oh, for real? Yep. Wow, dude, that's freaking creepy. I don't think it would be a monk, though. Dude, no, it would definitely be one of the defenders. Yeah, I think so, too. And literally, when I read that, I got goosebumps. Yeah, I'm feeling goosebumps, too. I'm over here looking like you're about to talk about what they're wielding as a weapon, and I'm like, okay, if it's some kind of a knife, it's probably Bowie. Like, I'm trying to, like, identify off of the characteristics, you know, that you're describing, and I'm like, nothing sounds like any of the big Alamo people that I would feel. Yeah, but, you know, I could see Jim Bowie being like, I need to get to freaking defend it the way I want to, you know? Yeah. And that being like an unresolved conflict, maybe. Which keeps had. him anchored. Yeah, it yeah. keeps him there, you know? I also feel like if anyone's going to haunt it, Travis would. Yeah, because he died in the fucking beginning, getting a headshot. He didn't yeah. get to fucking fight, really. I don't think know he, what he's doing. I don't even think he realized, like, he died. Because a headshot, you're dead instantly. He may have been, like, peeking over the wall. Boom, headshot. He's dead, and his spirit may be, like, still, still trying there. to defend the Al- Alamo because it doesn't realize it died. Yeah. Fuck. So, some people might be wondering how this war turns out. And I just, to cap that off before we get into more supernatural stuff, on April 14th, 1836, 186 years ago, from when this episode will be released, which is kind of fortuitous for us, because it's next Thursday, uh... Texan forces ambushed Santa Ana's numerically superior army at a place called San Jacinto. And in 18 minutes, they butchered the entire army, capture San Jacinto, and, or uh, capture Santa Ana and force him to sign uh, a treaty that basically says Texas is free. It's its own country now. And for as far as the Texans are concerned, that's where the war ends. But what historians don't, or rather what the Texans didn't know, as as soon as Santa Ana took his army north, the Mexican Congress booted him out of power, elected a new president, and were like, okay, whatever you sign doesn't count because he wasn't in power. So Texas is still ours. So this was going to set up nine years later when Texas is annexed by the United States and joins the Union, the Mexican-American War, because Mexico is still like, no, that's still our, that's still our territory. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Texas wins its independence. On April April 14th, 1836. When this episode's going to come out, April 14th, 189 years later. 
So after the Texans win the war, peace returns to San Antonio, but the rumors of ghosts at the Alamo continue. In 1871, when the mission was again threatened with destruction by city ordinance, ghosts were reported once more. Guests staying at the Manor Hotel across the street, which we're going to investigate at some point. Like, we're actually going to go and do that one. Um, so guests staying at the hotel report seeing a spectral figure in the Alamo's courtyard. Those staying at the hotel also swore they seen the spirits of Mexican army soldiers marching up and down the street. Sentries are spotted along the walls, and even in death, they are still defending the Alamo. The plans to bulldoze the Alamo are abandoned, and it's instead turned into a police station in jail. Now you might be like wondering, okay, these are rumors, but how do, how do we know people are actually seeing things, right? Yeah. Well, from 1894 to 1897, the San Antonio Express newspaper, mm -hmm. if you didn't realize it was that old, publishes a series of articles highlighting the news of hauntings in the Alamo. So you've got the literal local paper, a reputable source. This isn't a tabloid. All right, well, then they got to have like some kind of proof if they're going to post something like that. They're, well, they're like talking about what people have seen, what they claim to have heard. Um, so, I, I don't know if they have photographs, but that's what they have. They have stories of sentries being spotted along the wall tops. Dark figures are seen roaming in the corridors of uh, the Alamo. And the sounds of moaning is reported by the prisoners staying in the jail. So, like, some of, some of the police... It's probably coming from the prisoners. Yeah, I kind of thought about that. Like, that might, that might be <laughs> some, something going on. Uh, but... The guards at the jail are so freaked out at times that no one will walk patrols at night. And so they have a really hard uh, time staffing the prison, which is not something you really want to be short on staff yeah. at. <laughs> now, today the Alamo is a historic landmark, and it's run by historians to preserve its history, but rumors of ghosts continue. And I have some of the stories about the... There's a few... Frequently spotted specters at the Alamo. You ready for it? Yeah, give me the first one. The little boy of the Alamo. Skeptical already. One of the most commonly spotted ghosts at the mission is a blonde-haired boy. He's seen most often in the upstairs left window, which is now part of the Alamo's gift shop. As the story goes, it is believed that the little boy was evacuated during the siege of the Alamo. Though he survived, it's thought that perhaps his parents did not, and his spirit returns over and over again to the site where he last saw them during the month of February his little ghost is seen most frequently. So if he escaped, he obviously grew to a certain age if he escaped. Right, so why is he coming back and appearing as a child? Yeah. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical about that one as and well. Also, the fact that they're saying a little boy in Santa Ana didn't kill children and women. Another great point. You know, that's why I'm like, I don't know, it's, that seems kind of skeptical. It's not beyond the realm of possibility that a child was accidentally killed, because some of them were taking shelter in the Alamo and they were being hit with cannon fire. I guess. But, from again, I haven't really done a deep dive on this. From everything I've read, there's nothing in the Alamo records to indicate that happened. Okay. But remember, the mission, you know, the Alamo started off as a mission, had people die there, and they had a graveyard. So before the mission, before, before the Alamo. Before the battle. Maybe. So it could have been a child who died on the... Some kind of sickness or something. And is still wandering the grounds. All right, the next one is a Mexican soldier. Along the outer walls of the Alamo, the ghostly figure of what is believed to be a Mexican soldier has been seen by tourists and locals alike. Meandering the grounds... His hands are always clasped behind his back. 
his chin tilted down. He shakes his head somberly. Although it can't be proven one way or another, this ghostly soldier is believed to be General Manuel Fernandez de Castellón, one of Santa Ana's commanders who refused to lay siege to the Alamo. After the last of the firefights on the Eva battle came to an end, six men were brought to Castrano to surrender. The general offered the men his protection, but Santa Ana refused the act of truce and ordered the Texans' executions. Infuriated with Castellón uh, for refusing to follow orders, Santa Ana murdered the man himself, hacking them, him to death with a sharp-bladed sabers. The Mexican general? So, no. So, the Mexican general is like, I'm not going to kill these survivors. So, remember, Davy Crockett may have been taken prisoner. Yeah. So, that may have been one of the people. He's like, look, I'm not butchering them. I promise you I will protect you. And Santa Ana's like, no. I, you, no one survives. And so, he, like, pulls out his sword and he attacks the survivors and starts hacking them and killing them himself. And then, apparently, he almost killed uh, Castellón himself. So, Santa Ana then, like, in a rage slashes the Mexican general and almost kills him. Oh, shit. So, in death, he, his spirit may return to this place, feeling guilty for the fact that maybe he couldn't save their lives like he thought he could. Mm. Do you buy that one? Where, where are your thoughts? I could buy that one. Can you buy that, that one? one? Yeah. I do, too. Um, I, I think if anyone was to be spotted, you make a good point, like, probably not a kid, but... A Mexican soldier, certainly. A lot of Certainly died. more likely. And he's probably feeling guilty and like he didn't get to do what he wanted to do. So I get the sense of the stuckness. Yeah, absolutely. But the fact that he survived and he's stuck in that moment doesn't make sense to me. If yeah, he died else? in that moment and he got stuck in that moment, that would make more sense to me. But the fact that he got slashed and he lived and he walked away from it, I don't know. That part is a little fishy to me. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, you, he, he survived the battle. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know if he survived San Jacinto. Uh, I don't know where he wound up. But it seems weird that he his spirit would go back to the Alamo to haunt it. But that maybe, seems more like a living hell. Yeah, maybe he just felt that guilty that even if he went back to Mexico and died, he still felt like, I could have done more to save those men. And as a result, that's where he's like, that's his punishment. I feel like it's a little bit of a stretch, but maybe. Okay. The next one is a father and son. So again with the kid, which we talked about why that we're kind of skeptical about children haunting the Alamo. Yeah. Various reports have surfaced over the years of seeing the apparition of a man and a child up on the rooftop of the Alamo. The spirits are always seen just after sunrise, but then the images distills jerks as the ghostly man wraps his arm around the child and leaps off the parapet to the ground below. It would seem these ghostly figures are a case of residual energy, for during the last moments of the Battle of the Alamo, General Andrande and the other Mexican soldiers glanced up and were horrified to see a tall, thin man with a small child in his arms leap to the ground from the parapet at the rear of the Alamo church. Committing suicide. Yeah, they may have thought, this will be faster. Maybe the Mexicans torture us. But also, the Alamo's like maybe two stories tall. That's not going to kill you. So that seems like a weird thing to jump to your death from. But yeah. You gotta be on head first, and that's probably like maybe... 30 feet max. Yeah. It's not gonna kill you, it'll paralyze you. Yeah. I feel like if you're trying to avoid a painful death, really what you've just done is guaranteed... A painful death. A painful death. Now, we, we talked about like popular hauntings at the Alamo, but we're always like, where's the hard proof? Yeah. 
Um, and I have a photo of you of someone who claims to have captured a ghostly face at the battle or around the Alamo. So you can kind of see the outline, the lighter outline in white, and you can see what looks like darker eye holes. You can, on the left side of his face, you can see the edge of an ear. On the right, the same, a large mouth. Coincidentally, no body. Think about that. Yeah. Bro, if you think about that, that could be a head, that could be a head, that could be a head. That could be a face. You can almost see so do you, multiple faces in that. So you see multiple faces, okay. Multiple people. So Definitely you, someone standing in front more closer and others maybe like further distant behind. Look at the bottom right of the photograph. It looks like there's almost another face there. But I'm, I'm always like... I don't know, you can almost maybe say all those two black dots that are so close to each other. You yeah, a lot of these look like faces. Like a lot those of are like, all eyes. They almost look like piled skulls a little bit. Yes, I know. But part of me always wonders when I look at things like this yeah. is if there's actually something there or if it's pareidolia. Do you know what pareidolia is? Is that where you're trying to make something out of nothing? Yeah, you're, you're literally trying to assign human features to things that don't have them. Like in my bathroom at home... There's a spot on the wall on the bottom right that looks like a Viking wearing a helmet. But yeah, that's definitely not a face, but that's pareidolia for you. It's trying to make, assign human-like characteristics for something that doesn't exist. Yeah, I don't know. Too blurry of a photo, I'm thinking. Okay, so if you had to snap decision, is it a face, yes or no, what's your answer? No. Fair enough. Okay. If it so, is a face, it's way too big, way too rounded. You know, it, it looks like a bald man to me. Like, there's no hair. And the the, uh, the style of the time would have been long hair and bushy beard or, like, mutton chops or something like yeah. that. And this, if this is a person... This looks like somebody made with alopecia. Yeah, they're hairless entirely. Yeah. There's no beard. There's no hair on top of their head. Very unlikely for the time. Now, we talked about frequently spotted ghosts at the Alamo... The ones I gave you earlier, the four of them, were from one source, and I have an additional source, which has some uh, frequently spotted figures as well. You ready for them? Yep. So the first one is called The Lone Figure. Of all the survivors, only one had produced a record recorded haunting. There have been literally dozens of reports of a lone man dressed in the clothing of the time, carrying a long rifle, walking solely towards San Antonio from Nacogdoches streets. When passerby stopped to investigate the strange sight, they are told that he is trying to get back to the Alamo where he belongs. It is thought that this restless, guilty soul is of Louis M. Moses Rose. Oh, fuck yes. The coward of the Alamo, as he's called, who regretted his flight and is now damned for eternity to try and regain his honor by returning to the battle. I would love that if it were true. I definitely have chills. Yeah, I got chills I, too, dude. I feel like it's not because he didn't die in the Alamo. Again, we get this thing over and over again with the general, now with Louis M. Rose. They die in other places. Yeah. But their spirits somehow roam the Alamo. Maybe there's just such a strong freaking connection going on in that moment, dude, where... Oh, absolutely. You know, when I was... Uh, I read a book not too long ago about paranormal uh, investigation. And the author of this book had performed this investigation in the house. And every morning at 4 a.m., the owner of the house would hear footsteps going down from the hallway 
from the bedroom upstairs, downstairs, into the kitchen. She'd hear cabinets opening and closing. And then she'd hear footsteps going back up the stairs and back to the main bedroom. Well, it turns out that the home had been previously owned by her grandmother. Okay? And even though she didn't die in the home, she had a habit every morning at 4 a.m. She'd go for like a late night, early morning snack. She'd go downstairs, eat a bowl of cereal, come back upstairs and go back to bed. Um, and the, the author of this book speculated that some energies are so intense or have been done habitually so many times over you know a lifetime that it imprints on the location. And so maybe that general is feeling so guilty that it imprinted on that location that like, oh, I should have done more. And maybe Moses Rose here felt so bad when he left the Battle of the Alamo and figured out everyone died except him that he's like imprinted on the location as now a residual type haunting. Alright, I can dig it. I like it. So that was a really long Man, now I know if I ever see that shit, first thing I'm gonna be like, yo, I'm gonna be like, yo, bros. You bitch! Yeah. <laughs> Fuck you! <laughs> Just kidding. Let me drive you back to the Alamo. Yeah. Can you tell me the exit for hell? <laughs> I'm going to get my machine gun and go with Moses Rose to defend the Alamo. I'm going to salt and pepper your ass Winchester style and drive your ass to hell myself, you stupid bitch. <laughs> nice. So, you, you buy that one, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I like that one. Okay, all right. Now we've got the ghostly rider. What is this? The fucking ghost rider? Is Nicolas Cage going to pop out and flame on? Oh, God, I hope not. Those movies... I can't decide if those movies are bad or good. <laughs> like, I kind of like the ghost rider. Uh, I liked the first one. I think the second one was bad. I think they could have done a better job for sure, yeah, with it. But, like, I I, I like the idea of the ghost rider. They could have put a better storyline, I feel like, to it. I like the background stuff they did, but, like, how they ended it, I just felt like was not... So good. Yeah, I like. I actually like the backstory element to it, where he's like, he's a he's a trick trick rider or like a yeah daredevil. And it's why, and you should see why he sold his soul. Yeah, I, I like that aspect, but you're right. The movie kind of like fizzles out, pun intended, I guess. Yeah. All right. So the lone rider. In addition to Juan Seguin, two other riders were sent out from the Alamo to deliver Travis's calls for aid. One of which was James Allen. Every March. A few days after the anniversary of the battle, residents of the area surrounding the Alamo are awakened in the early morning hours by the sound of horses' hooves on the pavement. It is believed that it is the spirit of James Allen, the last courier to leave the Alamo the evening before the massacre, trying to return and report to Colonel Travis. This incident, although glamorized and elaborated on, had been more or less immortalized by the Steven Spielberg in an episode of a short-lived uh, television series. Uh, that he produced in the 1980s, but apparently I don't know. This is a stretch. When people hear the this horse, is an assumption they hear the hooves like beating away down the street. Yeah, uh, people and then you like, don't think that could have been from the Mexican army or like. Yeah, else? It, it's a stretch that it's him, that it's the last courier. But like people will shout out and they'll be like, "Go away! The battle's over!" And apparently the hooves like stop. They they don't hear them anymore, which is kind of interesting. Again. um... Okay, that part is kind of interesting, yeah, but like I still feel like it's an assumption. Yeah, again, <laughs> a stretch we talked about this last week with the uh, Pythian Castle episode, where I was like, hey, you know, I feel like a lot of investigators use knowledge they have about the place to make sense of the things they experience. 
instead of just being like taking it at its face value. But we're, the last account is called Ghostly Boys. All right. Many visitors to the Alamo report seeing two small boys about 10 to 12 years old tagging along with the tour group who visit the grounds of what is arguably the holiest spot in Texas. No one seems to know where they came from and no one sees them leave. They simply disappear when the tour group reaches the small sacristy in the room of the Alamo Church. Many believe these little boys to be the sons of Alamo Artillery Officer Anthony Wolfed, uh, Wolf, aged 9 and 12, who were both in the final assault, mistaken for combatants by the advancing Mexicans, and they were discovered hiding in the Alamo Church. So I don't know if they were killed, they were, but they were mistaken for combatants, which makes me think, yes, they were killed. So a 9 and 12-year-old helping their dad reload a cannon, cut down. Mm. So that, that earlier when we were talking about, I haven't heard of any kids dying in the Alamo. I guess it's staying corrected. And there is a couple that did. Because, you know, they must that must have been a big goddamn nine-year-old if you think he's a grown man. Yeah, I know. You're not mistaken that. There's, that's, that's not a mistake, dude. That might have been one of those things where, like, their blood is up and they're so scared and they just see someone and shoot. Yeah, I can see that. Do you buy... But the ghost. You don't shoot twice. No, you can't because every gun is like fire once. You got to load gunpowder, load a ball, pack it. Well, it's maybe not the same guy, but maybe a group of guys. A group of guys came across them. The heat of battle. Who knows? So do you buy it? Uh. I don't know. That might make that might give sense as to why we see those, the kid on the roof and then the other guy jumping off the roof with the kid in his arms. You know, thinking maybe they weren't trying to kill themselves. Maybe they were just trying to escape. And they died. And they died in the attempt. Yeah. Mm. Well, I showed you a photograph. We went over the case. We talked about how the San Antonio Express News has been reporting. Ghost stories since 1894, over a hundred damn years ago. Um, Has any ghost hunter ever gone and recorded this? I don't know. I feel like someone's got to have investigated the Alamo. But in in my you know research for what I found, I didn't find like an investigation. I really didn't hit YouTube that hard because using YouTube clips, I feel like really breaks up the flow of the episode, and I, yeah. I didn't want to do that. But Keeping in mind that I feel like if we say the Alamo is not haunted, we're going to be hung in Texas's trailers. Oh, yeah. I'm going paranormal on this one. It's got to be haunted, dude. It's got to be haunted. There's okay. so many people, I feel like, who died at the Alamo trying to defend it and stand for it. There has to be something there. Yeah, you know, I agree. I think it's paranormal as well. A lot of people died there. It was a missionary. But you've got reports of hauntings since 1894 by the San Antonio Express News. That is cross-corroboration over time. I don't know about the Diablos thing. Uh, it gave me chills when I was reading it, but, like, you've got newspaper reports. You've guessed the Manor Hotel attesting to it. You have prisoners saying this happened. That wasn't a great photograph of a ghostly face, but, yeah, I agree. I think the Alamo is definitely haunted. So we got a double... Paranormal. I think that's like the second one of this season, too. Which didn't happen last season. Hell yeah. <gasps> I almost forgot. The Alamo. All right, guys. That was uh, another episode of Drunk in the Paranormal. Thank you so much 
for joining us. A quick shout out to uh, one of our listeners uh, named Kirk, who actually gave us a suggestion on uh, the first one we've ever gotten on the Drunkenly Paranormal Gmail. So first case suggestion. Uh, if you have another one for us, guys, you can do that at drunkenlyparanormal at gmail.com. If you want to help support the podcast, maybe help fund us getting more sound tiles, uh, some cooler audio recording equipment, maybe send us out to investigate a place. Yeah, help us fund the podcast. And the beer. Yeah, and the beer. Consider donating to us at uh, patreon.com slash drunkenlyparanormal. If you are a alcohol distributor, brewer, distillery, and you want to sponsor an episode... Uh, reach out to us at uh, drunkenlyparanormal.gmail.com. Guys, as always, thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us. I'd like to remind you to not drink and drive. And Harlem? Stay fucked up. Oh, and uh, I almost forgot something. What? Remember the Alamo. Hell. <laughs>